This week, human activity is moving mountains. Human activities are causing you know, observable, real-time changes to the solid Earth and to deformation of the solid Earth, in particular earthquakes. And ferocious baby-killing mice turn into perfect parents. The results were absolutely astonishing. And instead of attacking the pups, the males are now grooming the pups. So we transform these uh, aggressive males into loving dads. Plus, how the sex of the animal in your experiment might affect the results. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 15th, 2014. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. California's mountains are moving. GPS measurements have shown that the mountain ranges that surround the state's central valley rise and fall with the seasons. They're also getting a little bit taller each year as the valley floor sinks. But why all this movement? Geologist Colin Amos at Western Washington University and his team suggest that removing enormous amounts of groundwater to irrigate crops is what's responsible. Our unquenchable thirst could cause even more earthquakes. Here's Colin Amos speaking to nature reporter Ewan Calloway. I live in California for 17 years and did all my geologic training there. And, you know, California is home to, you know, some pretty iconic mountains, the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And as a geologist and as, you know, just someone who likes to go hang out in the mountains, you know, it's hard to look at those mountains and not wonder how they came to be. Your team used GPS stations to observe the rise of California's mountains and the fall of its central valley. What's causing this? So the the valley sinking is related to removing water out of the aquifer and compaction of that aquifer. So if you take the water out of the sediments, the sediments lose their pore space and and the ground compacts and it sinks. The mountains rising is is different in that what we think that reflects is really the elastic behavior of the upper portions of the earth. So if you imagine a a weight being placed on something that behaves elastically, it's kind of weighing that down. And that weight we can think of as being the groundwater in the aquifer. And if we remove that, and you know, we are doing that as, um, as we take more water out of the ground than is being replenished, the ground is actually being unburdened. And you can think of it kind of flexing upward uh, along its margins. And therefore, we're seeing uplift of the surrounding mountains just by virtue of losing that weight from the valley itself. How much water are we talking about, and, and where is it going? The long-term loss of water from the San Joaquin Valley, or the Central Valley of California, is on the order of about 150 cubic kilometers. You know, just to put that in perspective for people who know California and the geography, that's roughly equivalent to the volume of Lake Tahoe. So that's 150 years of taking water out of the ground, irrigating crops. It's kind of a staggering amount of water being lost out of there. So what are the consequences of these geological changes, seeing the mountain ranges rise and the valley fall? Again, you know, we came at this looking at, well, why are the mountains on either side going up? And then we started to think, what, what are potential consequences of this? We asked the question whether or not that flexure and uplift could produce small stress changes on the faults that are surrounding the valleys. And, you know, just so happens that one of the faults that is parallel to the valley is the San Andreas Fault. Is it enough to cause, to cause earthquakes? So what, what has been observed on the San Andreas Fault is that there's a, a seasonal pattern in the number of small earthquakes for portions of the fault. So there's more earthquakes, small earthquakes again, during the 
uh, drier portions of the year. So that had been observed and has been explained through a variety of you know, potential hydrologic effects, like rainfall in the mountain, you know, in the coast ranges, you know, diffusing into the fault zone. And what we're saying is that potentially we can produce those same sort of stress changes that might lead to the increase in the rate of small earthquakes, just by virtue of the the flexing up and down of the um, the mountain range. And it looks like it's potentially, you know, significant enough to, you know, trigger these small earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault. And you say that these small earthquakes could be increasing in, in frequency. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, in addition to calculating the yearly stress changes, you know, we're able to look at what the long-term stress changes are. And, and the, the important thing to bear in mind here is that these are really, really small stress changes compared to, you know, the stresses that are acting on these faults. But over the long term, it is true that um, the stresses that are, you know, keeping the fault clamped together, you know, that are preventing earthquakes from occurring. If the ground is flexing up uh, around it over the long term, which uh, our GPS measurements show that it is, that should reduce the magnitude of those forces keeping that fault clamped together. So over the long term, yes, we would expect a, a decrease um, in, the, in the stresses that are you know, serving to keep that fault clamped. So you're basically, I mean, you're suggesting that, that human activity, you know, irrigating crops is potentially leading to an increase in earthquakes. That's one of the potential implications of our paper, that human activities are you know, causing, you know, observable, real-time changes to the solid earth and to deformation of the solid earth, in particular earthquakes. Could we be causing bigger earthquakes, ones that could, could maybe even do damage then? I think that bigger earthquakes are going to occur on, on these faults and the San Andreas Fault, really no matter what we do. Our study doesn't bear on the potential for large damaging earthquakes on the San Andreas Fault. We're only able to explain the yearly changes in small earthquakes that are occurring. Will we see more of this in, in the future? Pretty much any future scenario for what climate's going to look like in California in the coming years, that I'm aware of at least, indicates that you know, the aridity of this valley is going to increase. There's going to be less groundwater going down into the ground. So the phenomena that we're describing, the mountains going up slowly, and the yearly ups and downs potentially changing the stress on these faults is a pheno- are phenomena that I don't expect to, to go away. That was Colin Amos talking to our biggest mountain fan, Ewan Calloway. Coming up in the research highlights a more sustainable way to fish and how polar bears have evolved quickly to suit their cold homes. But first, when it comes to parenting in the animal kingdom, males and females have different styles. Often mums assume the parenting duties, whereas dad's role can vary. In mice, how a male behaves to pups in the group boils down to its sexual experience. Sexually experienced males are caring towards babies because, after all, they might be the father. Whereas virgin males are a pup's nightmare. At best, they're aggressive and neglectful. At worst, they kill the babies. This week in Nature, a Harvard team led by Catherine Dulac have uncovered the neurons that control whether a virgin male acts like an enraged killer or a dedicated dad. We'll hear from her in just a moment, but joining me in the studio to discuss the research is Nature editor Tongi Schwad. Tongi, firstly, why do some male mammals have an urge to kill babies in their group? Well, I guess the answer comes from Darwin. Some males will want to kill the progeny of their competition, Male lions, the alpha males, when they take over a herd, they, the first thing they do is they, to go around and identify all the young males, all the young pups, actually, and, uh, and kill all of them. And then they deal with the females and try to build a progeny of their own. 
So that would be the rational. But of course, then that male would not want to kill its own progeny. And so there's the question of uh, how do you switch from one baby killer behavior to a uh, loving dad behavior. And that's what this paper is about. So this team uh, led by Catherine Dulac have, have looked into this switch. Right. It's not very convenient to study lions in the lab, so they turn to mice. And the interesting thing in mice is that virgin males are aggressive towards pups, but once those uh, males have mated, a couple of weeks after they have mated, actually, they progressively become less aggressive to, towards pups, and even more, they progressively become parental, nest-building, grooming pups, and protecting them. And so what did researchers think govern this sort of behavior? So these guys had experience with the a peripheral organ that is called the vomeronasal organ that's specific to mice. That organ, the VNO, its function is to recognize chemical signals that are specific uh, for the, the species, that are mouse-specific sig- signals. And then in turn, the, the organ controls some rather complicated social behaviors. And so that lab had actually already gathered uh, several tools to study that organ and they speci- specifically some genetic means of impairing its, its function. So essentially just deleting the nose changes their parental behaviour. How does that work? The hypothesis was that there would be a central circuit that this peripheral organ, this sensory organ, might be regulating. And so they went after that central circuit. And the way they did it is to look for signals that would identify neurons activated during uh, such parental behavior. They zeroed in uh, on a small uh, little nucleus in, like, at, at the basis of the brain, in a very old part of the brain, that is the hypothalamus in the limbic system, which is involved in regulating um, a lot of the basal behaviors involving reproduction and uh, thermoregulations and things like that. And once they had those neurons that seemed to light up at the right time during those very specific behaviors, they set up to ask whether interfering with their function, either by blocking them or by activating them, would allow the researchers to actually control that behavior. And uh, that's what they did. Okay. well, earlier this week, I spoke to author of the paper, Catherine Dulac. Let's have a listen to what her team saw. We suddenly see parental behavior disappearing in both virgin males, moms, and dads. So that was very, very striking. These neurons are essential for parental behavior. And the second experiment was now to take a male, a virgin male, and activate these neurons each time the animal is approaching pups. And the results were absolutely astonishing. There were no attack any longer, and instead of attacking the pups, the males are now grooming the pups. So we transformed these uh, aggressive males into loving dads. Catherine Dulac there. What's even more striking is that these circuits are all in mice, not just virgin male mice. Here's Catherine again. One important finding in our result is that there's absolutely no difference in the number of these neurons between the male brain and the female brain. So the behavior that is observed in virgin males and females is clearly sexually dimorphic. 
virgin females are using these neurons and virgin males do not. But they are there sitting in the brain in both male and female brains. And so this really underscores a very interesting set of regulation of social behaviour. Tongi, back to you. As Catherine says, these central neurons needed for parental behaviour are there in virgin mice, but they're just not used. Instead, they're silenced by this organ in the nose, which is active in response to pheromones produced by the pups. Right. Actually, it's a bit as if you had the engine for parental behaviour in all animals, but then there would be a clutch that would then decide whether you put the engine in gear or not. And Definitely in virgin males, the clutch is off and you just don't allow that parental behavior engine to get into gear. And how are these results significant for our understanding of social behavior? The main thing for me is the amazing modularity that it reveals about the brain, which would be an engineer's choice in a way. You know, you have once the evolution has found a way of controlling such a complex behavior as parental care, but then a behavior that would not be adaptive in all circumstances or for all animals in the tribe, well, then the simplest way to modulate that would would be, again, to have the main engine and then to have different ways of putting it into gear or not. And so the modularity seems to be the more rational way, but the fact that such an organ as the brain would use that principle is pretty, and to that all or none degree is pretty spectacular. That was Tongi Shuad with help from Catherine Dulac. Could the sex of the cells in a Petri dish affect the results of an experiment? Noah Baker will be finding out soon. But first, here's Charlotte Stoddart with the research highlights. Catching fish on long lines could be a more sustainable way of deep-sea fishing than bottom trawling. Trawling involves dragging a giant net through water and damages vulnerable ecosystems on the sea floor, as well as bagging fish. Researchers looked at data from longline fishing, which uses one main line with lots of shorter hooked lines attached to it. In vulnerable deep sea ecosystems, trawling would remove most of a region's precious coral in a dozen trips. You'd have to go longline fishing thousands of times to have the same effect. But it's not perfect. Lines can still hook the wrong kind of fish and even seabirds by accident. Find that paper in Scientific Reports. You think your diet is bad? Well, welcome to the world of the polar bear, which feasts on fatty seal blubber to survive the Arctic cold. Now, a study comparing polar bears with their closest relative, the brown bear, reveals how they survive on such an unhealthy diet. There could even be lessons for how to protect humans from the effects of high-fat diets. Researchers sequenced the genomes of almost 100 bears, both brown and polar varieties. Polar bears have evolved genetic traits that help them process fat, so their arteries remain clog-free. They've also evolved quickly. They split from brown bears under half a million years ago. Read more in the journal Cell. Soon, editor David Ray will be coming to the studio with the news. But before that, newsflash, there's a gender bias in science. Not a big surprise. You knew that already, right? There are more men doing science than there are women. But it's not just male researchers who are in the majority. Spare a thought for the lab mice, as there's also a strong bias towards male animals and cells in research. 
This can be a problem as a disease doesn't necessarily affect males in the same way as it does females. Now the National Institute of Health in the States is requiring their scientists to start balancing the genders of their model organisms. Janine Clayton from the NIH has written a comment on the subject. Noah Baker caught up with her and asked what kinds of model organisms were involved. Animal models involve a variety of rodents, mice, rats, but they also involve other animals as well. And what we cover in this new policy is both animals and cells, because it's really important to understand that every single cell has a sex, and the sex of the cell affects the biological and biochemical properties of the cell, and that's important in research. How widespread is this bias across the scientific community? Unfortunately, it's pretty pervasive. We know that several disciplines uh, use many more male mice than female mice, and that information is available in the literature. And unfortunately, we also know that many, many people do not publish the sex of the animals that they are including in their research, despite the fact that they publish other important information. So it's a pervasive problem. And why is there this bias? Well, there are a variety of reasons that explain this bias, and and some of them include a misconception by scientists that female animals are more variable than males because of uh, hormonal cycling. And uh, some folks don't think that sex matters and that you can actually apply your findings from male animals or male cells to females to understand them. And the information about the importance of sex being a fundamental variable in biomedical research is not uniformly disseminated. In some cases, it just may be a matter of convention. So what kind of problems can arise from only using male models in studying systems, for example, in disease? When you only use one type of cell, or animal, male that is, you're learning about how a therapy or a disease process progresses in that particular type of animal or cell in this case male. We know that diseases differ in terms of how they are expressed in people. For example, autoimmune diseases are much more common in women than men. Um, Multiple sclerosis is one of those, and we talk about that in the paper, but men who get multiple sclerosis tend to have a poorer outcome. Now, animal models and cell lines have been used for literally centuries in, in research. Why is it only now that this issue is cropping up? As we learn more and we have new technologies, we have scientific evidence that grows by leaps and bounds every day, and we are learning more. And when we learn more, that identifies gaps in our knowledge. And we now understand that sex matters in a a significant way. And unfortunately, previous calls to action have not resulted in a systematic understanding throughout. And so what we're doing now is calling on scientists to take sex into account in their plans for preclinical research, that research using animals to find out if a drug, a procedure, or a treatment is likely to be useful in humans. I expect this to enhance our ability to to learn more from the experiments that we're doing once we pay attention to this blind spot we have. You know, we think of this as a blind spot, looking for differences between males and females, and uh, we need you to check your blind spot before you change lanes uh, in the preclinical space as you're going to clinical research. How exactly do we go forward now? How do scientists change this practice? Will it be difficult for scientists to, to start using um, different methods in the future? 
Well, we think of this as a, an upgrade to the operating system. And whenever your computer or your smartphone gets a new software that updates, it can address gaps and bugs and fix bugs. So we're thinking of it that way. The first time you try to use it, you might be unfamiliar with it. But over time, it becomes easy and you see, wow, I have this thing I never had before. And now it works really well. We need our scientists on board. We need our, the, the scientists who come in and review as part of the peer review process on board. We need our colleagues in the publishing world to make sure that their reviewers do this. And we need our colleagues in the clinical realm, both those who teach and those who care for patients, to know that we're going to be providing preclinical data that is sex-specific for them so that when they have their male or their female patient, they will be able to have sex-specific information available to help them treat each patient as an individual. That was Janine Clayton from the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. Finally this week, News Time editor David Ray joins me. And first, the fallout continues from a radioactive leak at a nuclear waste dump back in February in the US. David, February feels quite a while ago. What happened? So, yeah, there was an accident at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant, otherwise known as WIP, a large nuclear waste facility which stores um, low and medium level military waste down in uh, underneath the desert in New Mexico. It's a sort of salt chamber based uh, depository. And there was a, an explosion or, or one of the containers down there sort of basically uh, ruptured and gave out a lot of radiation into the, this, uh, this chamber down there. And some of that, in fact, escaped up to the surface as well. And what came out last month was a report into this and some of the failings that were involved. Yeah, so April 24th, a report comes out that's very scathing of the Department of Energy. Yeah, it is. I mean, this is a Department of Energy-run facility with some help from some private contractors. And uh, the report was uh, particularly scathing about their management of the uh, of, of the facility in particular, some of the, the lax safety methods they used. And they actually said that the safety and maintenance down there was pretty much ineffective. Yeah, unusually scathing, bearing in mind it was the DOE reporting on its own department. Now, this week in Nature, um, a sort of second day report, if you like, from Declan. Butler, one of our reporters. Yeah, so he's been doing a bit of digging on this issue, and I think following up from the report, we've uh, been able to find out that there was a group back when WIP was opened in 1999 set up by the DOE for basically oversight, uh, both safety and environmental and design of of the WIP facility. And um, they were set up well before 1999, she said, but sort of monitored the opening and a few years thereafter. And they were very credible. People liked them. They were able to sort of, you know, build a consensus that this was a safe method to um, to store nuclear waste. But it was disbanded in 2004 by the DOE. And um, as a result, a lot of the ex-members of that particular group and also sort of independent voices are saying that perhaps this accident is, is, is evidence that we need a similar group back in place. So now it's being managed, this facility, by local government and by the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, but there are calls, I suppose, by people that um, Declan Butler has spoken to for this article to reinstate some kind of independent group. Yeah, absolutely. So it's you know, still managed by the DOE, but the, the oversight for sort of safety and things has passed to the, the, the federal uh, agency and also the, the, the local government. So these people are basically saying that, yes, they need to reinstate something very similar to this, what was called the Environmental Evaluation Group, and uh, that it's sort of higher levels of, of oversight and the fact that it wasn't scared to sort of intervene and, and, and suggest sort of changes and things um, mean that there's a, a, quite a big dearth here for uh, oversight. And they're sort of suggesting the setting up of either the reinstatement of that committee or the setting up of a new one that has a very similar job. And will their calls be, be heeded? Yeah, this is a difficult question. I think 
unfortunately DOE didn't actually manage to get back to us in time for this story and we've still not heard from them but we don't honestly know I mean I think that they're obviously aware of these calls I think that they've been sort of having them for a few years since 2004 when the EG was disbanded but uh, we don't know whether this will change them but you'd like to think it would give them a certain nudge so it might be a good idea to introduce something like this now. Okay now regular listeners to the podcast will know that we often go to Mars uh, not literally we speak about how NASA and the European equivalent the European Space Agency are sending various rovers there Curiosity's there now wandering around. Uh, and you have a story this week in the section that relates to an, yes, another rover project. Yes, exactly. Curiosity's now almost old news. So this is Mar- uh, NASA beginning to think about its next mission to Mars. And uh, this one, they're, they're beginning to think, I think it's going to go in 2020 is the, the sort of plan at the moment. And it's going to be also looking for life or, or evidence of life on Mars, in particular sort of uh, the evidence of, of the water that used to exist up there. And the big problem is, that, or big challenge they're giving themselves this time, is that they're going to bring back soil samples. And this has never been done from Mars before, has it? No, exactly. The closest we've got is, is bringing the Apollo missions, bringing back uh, soil samples from the moon. And obviously that involved people, which, which this it can't happen in Mars at the moment. So it's a, a mechanical automated method of getting samples dug by this rover they're planning back to, back to Earth. And this, I mean, Curiosity was ambitious enough, right? Landing that heavy rover on the surface with this sequence of, I don't know, balloons or whatever else they end up using to slow it down and get it there safely. And now they're thinking of trying to get samples scooped up from Mars and somehow sent back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the sky crane, I think it was called, that they managed to use to pinpoint Curiosity in a particular location. So as part of this, they're thinking about locations as well. But the main thing will be to get another rover down onto Mars to meet the rover which has dug the samples. They'll exchange the the samples. That second rover will then blast off back into space, into Mars orbit, and it will be collected by yet another spacecraft, which will in turn fly it all back, or the whole package back to to Earth. And I thought the Royal Mail was a risky delivery strategy. David, where will they be getting these samples from? Have they decided that yet? Well, another part of the meeting that's going to be happening this week to discuss all this stuff is to figure out where exactly they're going to send these um, this particular rover and collect the samples. And as ever, there's great debate about where they should go. Should they go to places they've been to? Should they try new areas? And, and where's safe to land? Where are they actually going to be able to control this rover from? So that'll be a, another big sort of point of, uh, of what will come out of the meeting. And they hope to get some decisions together by 2019, obviously in time for the planned launch in 2020. Okay, well, thank you very much, David Ray. And for more on those stories, you know where to go, nature.com slash news. That's it for now. Join us next week. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. 